The Guardian. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. This week, Patty Griffin takes a voyage round her father. Kieran takes a bite out of the Big Apple. Plus tracks from Just a Band, Stay Positive and Coolie G and Jaguar and Singles Club. All here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. Casper Llewellyn-Smith. Hello. With us. Hello, how are you? Yeah, well, thanks. What's been going on in the news, people? Come on. Well, the woman who got her head kicked in accidentally by Miguel at her show is seeking legal action. I'm not surprised. Have you heard this? He, he actually booted her in the head. He did. Have you seen the video? No. Oh, video's very good. Really? Well, he, yeah, mid-performance, he kind of leaps as part of his theatricality. And, uh, yeah, just kicks her in the head quite severely. Is she at the front? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. It's really bad. Does he look shocked, or does he just carry on? Well, he does, but he's a staunch professional, so he does carry on. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hard to carry on, I would have thought. <laughs> when you've with your show, after you've just kicked a woman in the head, <laughs> inadvertently. But it's not one of those things, it wasn't like... Because you said, the way you said it, made it sound like one of those <laughs> birthday party gigs from 1981, where Nick Cave would just sort of beat people. <laughs> like, every song would be, you know, the first five songs would be an instrumental, because Nick Cave would be in the front of like fighting with members of the audience. Um, but it wasn't like that. No. I think we should sound the trumpets of welcome for the return of Johnny Borrell of Razorlight. Amazing sounding tracks from his new... I haven't heard a note of his new album. (laughs) But it... But you're a long-time fan, as we all know. It already sounds to me very much... Just on the basis of what the songs are called, it sounds like the album of the year. Give us a sample, then. One song is called Power to the Woman... (laughs) Another song is called Ladder to Your Bed. We'll, we'll, come back to, we'll come back to Ladder to Your Bed in a minute. Serrano Masochist, with an E on the end of Masochist. Serrano, like the ham. The Sera- no, 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 no. It's thing to say. ham masochist. To, uh, to Spanish... Uh... No, no, Serrano is in Serrano de Bergerac. The last track on it is called Erotic Letter. Now, the one I want to concentrate on here, Ladder to Your Bed. What's that mean? What, the object of your affections? What, is she sleeping in a bunk bed? Bunk bed, yeah. Bold, bold song title, I would have thought, given the current climate. If, if, how old is this person that's sleeping in a bunk bed? <laughs> or are you in prison? Is it like a prison love zone? Is it like that Rich Hall, you know, he almost looks like you? Is it going to be like that? Um, it's like those cheesy chat-up lines, like, is that a ladder in your tights, etc., etc., etc. Or a ladder to your bed. Does anybody say that? Is that a, le- a ladder in your bed? No. A ladder <laughs> to your bed? No. Well, I've barely ever been chatted up. So no, I've, I've, no one's ever said that to me. <laughs> is that a ladder in your tights or what? What do you say after that? Is that a ladder in your tights or what? doesn't matter. Doesn't no, it's say, one. say, say. What, what would it be if it wasn't a ladder in your tights? Or is it a stairway to a little sun sun? You know what I mean? Oh, man. Yeah. Do people say this People stuff? say that. People wow, say that. Wow, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, erotic letter. Imagine sitting down, you write a song, what shall I call it? Erotic letter. That's Amazing. I sort of think he's brilliant, Johnny Borrell, because I think he has an innate understanding that if you're going to be a rock star, it helps to be an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, Freddie Mercury's a bit of an idiot. So I, I, quite, I quite like, I think he's keeping a grand, grand tradition alive. You'd rather have those figures out there on the scene mm-hmm. than... Uh... People aren't like that. Well, so he's yeah. just putting it straight out there. There's nothing subtle about erotic letter. No. I know what I'm getting with that song. Power to the woman. Tim, Tim Jones of this ilk, uh, this parish, was uh, doing a Guardian Masterclass at Field Day. Right. Uh, last week. And, and this involved Guardian readers, people who paid for the privilege to, to understand the process of reviewing festivals with Tim, uh, getting to interview bands. And one of the bands, said bands, pulled out at the last minute. And mm. Tim said it was very awkward because uh, he then had to go and find another band to sort of pull out from backstage to meet these people. And he went backstage and just said, none of them looked like bands. You had no way of telling yeah. who was a band and who wasn't. None yeah. of them were dressed there in... You see, if Borrell, you know, if Johnny Borrell had been there, beeline for Johnny, you would just... You'd... Big fur coat in yeah. blazing sunshine, shades <laughs> on, on... a motorbike. On yeah. a motorbike, <laughs> kind of wearing a porpoise on his head. Yeah, no, that's... that's yeah, you should get more... That's, that's bad, isn't it? Kieran, you've been in New York. I have. Talk to us. Talk to us about New York. I was out there covering the Red Bull Music Academy... Mm-hmm. Um, in New York, which, for those who don't know, is basically um, a place where they bring a lot of established and up-and-coming DJs, producers, artists and the like together to kind of make music. They get a lot of good people at these Red Bull things. They have Brian Eno and Brian stuff like Eno, that. Brian Eno, Erica Badu, 
uh, Philip Glass, they had Questlove. Like, yeah, lots of people do these two-hour lectures, which are really incredible, and you can you can see them online, and they're very informative. And is this great. also is this the same thing where Felix Baumgarter drops out of the sky <laughs> in the middle of it? That's that's, the, that's it, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, 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 who did you meet? Who did you meet? Who are you, who are you talking to today? Um, so, to, uh, we went backstage to a dubstep night in Brooklyn, which is very weird because it was like a Croydon dubstep takeover um, at this club called SRB, and it was basically all just grime instrumentals and dubstep guys. So, we spoke to Plastician and Scream behind the scenes, and then while I was also there, we spoke to Rinse FM's T Williams, Egyptian Lover, who is a kind of funk maestro, and Torsten Schmidt, the man behind the Academy. Hi, I'm T. Williams, uh, DJ producer from London. How does it feel to be in New York for the Red Meat Ball Music Academy? It's uh, it's been amazing. It's been it's been sick, like privileged. Tell me a little bit about how your sound, which is so London centric, has has translated over here. It's good. Like they 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 liking it. They are loving it. Like um, I'm surprised. I was surprised myself, but obviously. Deep Space is like known for being a, a club night, which brings Francois K's night. He was supposedly known for like bringing like dubstep. He was one of the first people to bring dubstep to like New York, and so yeah, I felt I felt quite free in what I could do and how I could play on that night. And even though I was opening for like Giorgio Moroder, who's obviously disco, and Francois K is like in there as well and kind of plays that vibe, I still came and still brought the, like, the UK sound, and they they liked it. Do you know what I mean? Everyone says they, has said to me, and most people have come up to me and said to me that they like, what's that tune? And what's that tune? So yeah, I'll, they. They're definitely liking the vibe over here. Um, okay, so let's talk about you as a DJ and producer a little bit because you've done things with labels like PMR and Rinse and Night Slugs, all yeah. who have quite different musical preoccupations. Yeah. So how have you moved between all those kind of sounds and labels? That's me in a nutshell now. Now I'm, I'm finding my own space. Um, I just literally, production-wise, when I get in the studio, I just make whatever, like whatever comes to me on that day. And if that fit, that, that happens to fit on uh, Night Slugs, then fantastic. If that happens to fit on Rinse, then fantastic. If that happens to fit on PMR, then fantastic. But um, I've been lucky enough that there's a connection between all, all the sounds that I've come through. And... Is, it, is it difficult to kind of have all of those different worldviews, I suppose? Not in this time, not in this day and age. Like right now, it's like, it's seeming like it's just a free, it's a free fall right now. Like everyone's just doing whatever they want to do. Like, I mean, the, the only main thing for me is as long as people can dance to my music and I'm a happy man, do you know what I mean? That's it. And that's, that's all I can really say is like, it's, yeah, it's just dance music. My name is Thorsten Schmidt and I'm one of the co-founders of the Red Bull Music Academy. Obviously there's something thrilling about bringing uh, so many different musical worldviews together, but have you noticed or do you think that the increasing digitalization of global music culture has meant that perhaps they don't have as distinctive geographical identities as they might have had in previous years or, you know, in the last 10 years? I mean, you, you will find the trap producer in every little crap town on this planet now. Mm -hmm. But having said that, everyone is adding still their own mix, their own parental household, um, their musical upbringing, their whatever they've been listening to on the radio and so on and so on and so on to it. So um, I find there's still a lot of very local flavors in this. And um, in this day and age, I mean, the city you're from, it's mm -hmm. like... You just walk three blocks down the road and the accent is totally different. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that will still stay to a certain degree, which is part of the beauty of the human existence. And um, what you do find, though, these days is that everyone is a specialist and no one knows anything. Hello, my name is Oliver Jones, also known as Scream, and I am currently sitting in New York um, at SRB for No Sleep Till Croydon via Red Bull Music Academy. About to play the classics? About to play the classics, yeah. Are you still surprised at how dubstep translates to a New York audience? Um, the, the thing is, it's crazy, because I played, I played in New York when I was like 18, 19. The first time I came, I played at a venue called Avalon, which was officially, uh, originally Limelight. And that was one of the first dubstep shows here. So, yeah, it is kind of crazy, like, thinking from then until how it got. Like, 
like playing shows with Skrillex in fucking Denver to like 30,000 kids, it's like, it's insane going from playing second room years ago to like that. Obviously, now you've been at, especially doing stuff with the Academy, you see so many people that have been influenced by, I mean, your strain of dubstep particularly. I mean, is there, is there a question of authenticity? Is that a real anxiety that DJs and producers feel? Um, I think at a time it was. Um, I, I, I know it's especially now, especially that I call it the SoundCloud era. People don't, don't strive for an identity. Um, it, there's YouTube tutorials how to make the noise your lead line out of a record. So people, like, I find there's a lot more sheep now in a sense that they'd rather make the big record at the time that sounds like a big record at the time rather than trying to craft their own sound. There was this um, essay in German cultural writing in the mid-90s, which was about the um, majority of minorities, uh, which is probably the pretext of everything that we're experiencing now, where you have like all these 8 million different types of niche culture, but in the end they have so much in common again, because um, they're just different forms of expression. And I guess now that certain pillars of the uh, music industry have just collapsed, um, all the stuff that was always there is just a lot more prominent. What has changed is you're now talking to people that are maybe 19 or 20 that have been doing music for five, six, seven, eight years, even longer, and they are totally depressed because they only found out about Arthur Russell last year. <laughs> and you're like, um, I'm not really sure, but... Um, I think I was at least 28 or so before I heard the first, I mean, consciously heard the first Alpha Russell record. And so you have all these things where in this crowd of 30 participants, the, um, the lecturer would talk about something specific. And we also try to give a bit of a general intro to this person and the body of work that they have and their worldview and so on and so on. And when it go, gets to the participant questions, you would have at least one or two people who would go into something extremely specific about some bit of their work that they've done 50 years ago that they totally have forgotten about. But for that person, it means so much. And that's part of the beauty of the digital age. It's like mm -hmm. you can do a Moroder session and show how he was welcomed on German state television after he won his first Oscar and um, what kind of a bizarre situation it was with the host of that Saturday night show just like cuddling him in a very... Um, aggressive manner almost and um, the way they tried to explain to people what a synthesizer was and then they made him play along to it and it was awkward as um, swear word but um, for all these things digitalization is a beautiful thing it's hard for artists to break now um, and, and uh, like break with something new something fresh sounding because Especially like the, the like clubs and everything now, it's it's not genre based, which I actually love. I I, I prefer that a lot than it being solely genre based. Obviously, if you think throughout like the sort of late two thousands, you would didn't hear a dubstep record in drum and bass now. You didn't hear a garage record. So I, I like it. I just it just it just I find I just yeah I just find it, it it seems really hard for new producers. They don't feel like they have an identity. It feels like. Like, one minute they make trap, and then, oh, that's not hot anymore, let's make one more oh, no, wait, let's make the... So it just feels like there's not enough, not enough leaders. Somebody come up to me a little while ago, one of my mum's friends, and was like, yo, your, your record got me through my, my dad's death. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Stuff like that, that's when you're like, yeah, this, I'm really glad I chose this to kill this career. When you actually see and hear about it changing people. Hi, I'm Plastician. And um, we are here at SRB in Brooklyn for the Red Bull event. What's it like playing dubstep in somewhere like Brooklyn? Um, how, I mean, it translates so well. Is that surprising? How does it feel after all this time? Um, it's nice to do this in Brooklyn, actually, because it's one of the first places um, that actually picked up on dubstep outside of London. I think I've been playing out in America now for nine years. and I think my first gig in the States was in New York. Um, how do how do the crowds compare to London ones, the New Yorkers? Um, I think a lot of the gigs I do out here tend to be a lot bigger, so it's really nice that this club is kind of like a nice sort of small to medium sized club because it compares a lot more, it's a lot more similar to what I'm used to playing. Some of the gigs that you play out here are like huge festivals, you know, like 
it is the current, very current trend, like the whole, like they like to refer to it as EDM in the States and dubstep just kind of falls underneath that umbrella. So you do find yourself playing some extremely big festivals, mm -hmm. but it is nice when you get to play small ones. I, I did a tour at the end of last year and the beginning, actually it was the beginning of this year. I did some really nice, smaller, more intimate venues that were like packed in with people that it's nice, like people just let you get on with it like organically, just there to enjoy to hear what what you've got to what you've got to play as opposed to expecting you to play a certain sound and that that's nice. Lover, Los Angeles, California. To me, a party is a party no matter where I am. I could be in Poland, it could be in Russia, it could be in China, it could be in Rome, Germany, London, LA, New York. It's, it's a party, it's a party. I make the party what it is. Do you think, um, kind of following the internet and the age of digital culture, there, there's less of a difference playing kind of West Coast and East Coast parties because everyone listens to the same music now? Right, definitely. A lot of the younger um, kids listen to the internet and watch the YouTube videos and learn who the artists are before they go to the parties. We just did a show in London and I could look in the crowd and it was like 21, 22, 23, 24 year olds and they're all singing the words to every song. It's like, wow, this is pretty cool. I, mean, I can imagine the, the older cats in the crowd were singing and I can understand that. But the younger kids, it was like, it threw me back a little bit, but I said, okay, this is cool. We try to put a big emphasis on, as my professor called it, get it straight from the horse's mouth and try to get to the source and go like, okay, rather than having three nitwits talk about how a certain scene developed uh, in a place, try to have one of the people that was actually there when it happened and have that recorded and documented in the most true-to-the-source kind of fashion. Have you, have you noticed any kind of trends when you look up from the decks or whatever in, in crowds that are surprising or really different? Um, yeah, quite a lot of the American like rave kids yeah. you know like the neon it's very it reminds me of like it probably similar to like if you went to a trance rave mm. in the uk so yeah like the rave culture really blew up over here a lot of yeah, the, that hardcore till i die stuff yeah and it's 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 a it's a predominantly more of a young crowd i find like uh, the electronic events over here as opposed to at home i mean at home there's quite a lot of young youngsters out as well but you still do see like more a bit more of a mix whereas over here it tends to be like predominantly younger crowd i find uh, how does the how do a London crowd compare? London was rocking. <laughs> we just did a thirty a thirty um, day tour over in Europe, and I, I believe London probably was the livest crowd. I just made music to be music like back in the day. There was no different kind of music; it was just hip hop. And I got my style from Kraftwerk and Prince and, and Planet Rock being the, the backbone of everything that I was doing and I just kind of created my own style from those three and it just became Egyptian lover style and nowadays they call it electro they call it old school they call it old school hip hop so whatever they want to call it I don't care as long as they dance to it That was Kieran, talking to a variety of uh, dubstep producers, DJs, etc. in New York City. Anyway, it's time for Singles Club. Casper, let us begin with your track. I wrote a letter, but you never ever see it. I made a promise that you never ever know. I think about you, but you never ever notice. We might be better, but you're probably okay That is just a band Tell us 
podcast, but about just a band. I chose that because I knew I was coming on the show and I didn't want to be outdone by Kieran showing off that she'd just been in New York. Uh, right. I was just in Nairobi in Kenya. Oh, right. Um, for a sort of, which is not a million miles away you know from where I went the other day? Windsor. It was brilliant. <laughs> Datchum, actually. Anyway, Datchet. You're sorry. probably hanging out with the Queen is what you were doing. Uh Nairobi, Kenya. And it was just maybe a little bit, little bit like the Red Bull thing. It was for a project called Ten Cities. Um, bizarre, actually. Something set up by the Goethe Institute, which is uh, the German equivalent, really, of the British Council. And a guy in the Nairobi branch seemed to have got the money together and thought it would be a nice idea to uh, explore uh, ideas about club culture around the world today. So they'd brought over a couple of musicians from Lisbon and were pairing them with some uh, musicians from Kenya. Mm-hmm. They spent a few days in the house together making some tunes. Just a band were one of the Kenyan groups. At the same time, they also brought over about 30 academics and writers from around the world, or from, uh, I think, sort of 15 European cities and 15 Africa, maybe fewer than that anyway, mm-hmm. for a sort of three-day academic conference where people talked about to, clubs, about club culture in quite a theoretical way. You know, sort of slight shades of... Uh, the George Webber character in Posey Simmons cartoons, if you're familiar with an age <laughs> to remember that sort of thing as I am. And it was interesting. It was interesting. Bizarre. I'm going to write about this at some point next week, finally. But the discovery for me was, was this band, Just a Band. I didn't know much about the Kenyan music scene. I know a bit no, about No, it's not, it's not one of those African scenes that attracts a lot of attention over here, is the it? West Africa, you know, has always been huge, whether that's Mali yeah. uh, or whether, you know, at the moment there's a lot of Afrobeat stuff coming from uh, Ghana or Nigeria, and I've been to those places and know quite a bit about that. Uh, clearly in South Africa, you know... There's an amazing house music scene at the mm. moment. Everyone keeps talking about that. I knew very little about East Africa, so that was part of the attraction for me as well. And just a band sort of exemplify everything that, to me, is fascinating about what's happening on the continent at the moment, that, to me, you hear that. And it doesn't sound exactly like a kind of American R&B thing or an English thing, no. but equally, it's not something which... Uh, it's not sort of Andy Kershaw It's not Andy Kershaw yeah, music. No, absolutely. You know, absolutely. it's not the traditional music of this, and it's a generation who've grown up listening to American hip-hop or American RB or English music, and it's accessible to them. Mm. And they've also got the tools to make it because Fruity Loops is, mm. you know, within the last five years, really readily available to, to the burgeoning middle classes, certainly. Um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Is this, is this sort of indicative of the, uh, the rest of their album? The album's really good. You can get the album on Bandcamp. The, uh, the rest of the album's a bit quirkier, even. Yeah. Um, guy, one of the guys in the band, Bill, um, very, very cool guy, really interesting cat. And just, yeah, I've just been playing the record a lot since. I think it came out last year, but uh, you can dig around and find it easily on the internet. Kieran? Yeah, I really liked um, that it was so different from what I feel like I know about um, African dance music, especially kind of in the last few years, being really fascinated and excited by Afrobeats and hearing it being played out in clubs. This is kind of completely different to that in that it's very airy and gentle and, you know, the, the compositions are very minimal and it seems like it, it's le- it's less kind of, present if you will like it's you know the kind of the bass isn't really in your face in the way that you know you'd get from afrobeats or even like felakuti which is just like lots of layers of lots of instruments and it's quite difficult to ignore whereas this is like you know a little bit more pared back and yeah i quite like that i like the the gentleness of it i like the fact that it wasn't completely in your face i wouldn't have thought it go for africa i wouldn't necessarily because there's been such a sort of uh that kind of guitar sound which, you know, I appreciate, but it's just like an African guitar sound, isn't it? I mean, it, it, there are certain sort of signifiers of, you know, whether it's music from Zimbabwe or whether it's Congolese sukus or whatever. You know what I mean? There's a certain kind of African guitar style. I, I thought that could have easily come from, you know, Europe or America or something like that. It doesn't, ex- it doesn't seem like it would be necessary to put it in the world music section of the record shop if record shops still exist. Well, you know, and that to me, I, I really no, that's good. It. No, I, I really love it good as a record, but I just mm. also think that's why I say it exemplifies so much of the fascination for me with mm. music coming from Africa at the moment that it, it isn't, it doesn't fit into one category or the other and it's a new thing and it's evolving really quickly mm. things are happening really quickly there in really interesting ways because it, it is geographically mapped but it, it, it hasn't got all of those tropes that you would associate with kind of African music as a generalisation which mm. is why it's interesting so it feels progressive and it feels like it's doing something and it feels quite modern yeah I'd like to know from you Kieran where, where you sort of slot that in against some contemporary American thing for example I mean if you were sort of putting together a playlist of stuff or a mix of stuff where does that fit in um, I feel like, well, when I first heard it, I just thought it was like kind of gentle dance music. So it would even sound with like a, a you know, like um, 
I was thinking I heard uh, Bonobo's Boiler Room mix um, a couple of weeks ago and I felt like it would work really well with something like that. Uh, kind of those kind of tracks, just kind of that dance, electro electronica type. So even less like hip-hop really, but more just kind of dance music or like even like the UK uh, dance music at the moment. I think it would fit quite well in. Well, there you go. Just a band whose album is available on Bandcamp. Let's move on to Kieran's choice. <laughs> Stay Positive and Cooley G, uh, You Hate Me, a track from a new EP uh, called Blood Brother, I think, which has just come out. Um, apparently it used to be called Christian AIDS, yes. as in the disease. As in the disease, yeah. Quite, quite a... Quite a um, Christian AIDS. AIDS, Christian AIDS. Not like Christian Aid, the charity. Not Christian... Well, I suppose it's a pun on that, <laughs> yeah. but it's Christian AIDS, the disease, which seems like a very odd thing to call yourself. I mean, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, and then he's oh, known as Stay Plus and now he's Stay Positive. Stay Positive. So it's all in um, the AIDS theme. I um, like that very much. Yeah. I, I thought it was brilliant. I, um, I was, so initially it came on, I was, I was a bit disappointed. Right. Because it's got Cooley G on it. And Cooley G's album was one of my favourite records of last year. And it's a very experimental album, Cooley G's. Mm-hmm. You know? It's got sort of pop elements to it, but it's sort of all over the place in that kind of post-dubstep, all better off thing. And this came on, I was like, oh, you know, it's a house track, you know. It's all right. Um, but as it went on, the more I liked it, the more it seems to unravel as a song, I think yeah. it's fair to say, as it goes on. I also very much liked the uh, the video, which, uh, for listeners of a certain age, looks like something off Snub TV. It looks like when Snub TV used to make a video for a dance act, if anybody out there remembers Snub TV. It looks like something off Dance Energy or one of those early 90s programmes. I don't know how consciously they've done it. The, 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 you know, they sat down where we'll make a video that looks like the video for House Arrest by Crush. Um, but the footage in the video is old footage. There is lots yeah, of old footage. Old, old, old um, from exactly that period. From exactly that period. There was a brilliant interview with Cooley G, which went, yeah, I love that, uh, because my mum went to all those rooms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and she's a cool mum as well. She's a cool mum too. So. Um, so what do you know about old Stay Plus, Stay Positive, Christian Aids? <laughs> well, he, might be his name, Christian Aids. I mean, it might be... <laughs> Yeah, name. possibly. Um, he is a Manchester-based producer, and stuff that he's released previously has been kind of refixes of 90s R&B female vocalists like Samantha Mumba and Brandy and Monica. So I feel like he knows his way around a female vocal, and this is really good evidence of that. Um, because, yeah, like you say, Playing Me was kind of one of my favourite uh, dance albums of last year as well. And what I liked about it was, alongside being quite experimental, it's quite dark and quite brooding and like very airy, very spacious... Um, um, and even at times, like not that accessible, found like some of the tracks. No, I didn't think it was that accessible. Yeah, at some all. of the tracks was you know quite difficult way in. Whereas this is like this really kind of euphoric, catchy kind of trance mm. house offering, um, and it's quite difficult, I think, to actually make that uh, transition from one camp to the other, from the kind of burial hyperdub world to you know to this kind of massive you know big because it is like a big club here, and I can see this as a bit of kind mm. of a big summer anthem. Um, and it has to be done uh, just so. And I think that she's done it really well. She's probably the best person to do it. Um, I spoke to um, Code Nine for the for the podcast a few weeks ago, and we were just and we were just kind of discussing um, Hyperdub's roster. And he was saying that it was very much you know that like they do have this identity as being quite dark and you know because of burial basically yeah, because I mean burial, burial kind exactly. of ca- casts a sort of shadow I think but also over the rest of Hyperdub LV does yeah. and yeah, yeah. It kind of you know like you know and her album that kind of stuff is always and when you've seen them when I've seen them when I've been to kind of deviation or Hyperdub nights it's very much you know it's like pounding bass and not a lot of smiling and this sounds great yeah it's, it's really hot and crowded it's, as well. it's amazing it's hot and crowded and full of miserable people you would people. love it everybody can have a great time <laughs> um, uh, yeah and uh, this this is great like you know her vocals are kind of you know shifted in exactly the right way and it's done delicately and it's very well produced and yeah like you say I think it gives a little bit more on each listen so it's good Casper I thought you might uh, instead pick the Laurel Halo EP that's just come out as well which is also on Hyperdub I was playing a bit of the Laurel Halo and was quite excited about that and like yeah, that and then and then played this and I mean, I do like this, but it just feels, you know, it sort of this takes me back to my youth. I mean, it just feels, it's interesting what you were saying about his, his 
pedigree of, of kind of diving back into stuff and reworking H- it. House music is, is having, dance music generally, is having a retrospective for, moment. For me, kind of coupled with the video, it just, I mean, I enjoyed it and it, you know, gave me a kind of little nostalgic feel about it, but I couldn't get sort of hugely excited and kind of carry that, that thrill of the new for me. Um, I, I think it's interesting that dance music is having a, you know, whether it, it seems to go absolutely across genres, loads of post dub yeah, stuff. in the pop chart as well. In the pop chart, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's sort of disclosure to a certain degree mm-hmm. loads of post dubstep stuff sounds like two-step garage or, or even before that kind of speed garage used to be called you've yeah. got house producers like bicep who just i mean they're very good mm-hmm. um but biceps records just sound like they could have come out on strictly rhythm in 1994 which is you know which is fair enough it's just an interesting thing yeah. that is this dance music first retro moment is this the sort of first time dance music has done retro since actually pre-house you get that kind of rare groove era where it was obviously kind of based around old records mm. it's just intriguing to me it's happened now I never think of dance music as being retro other than a very very knowing kind of way and this isn't in a knowing way at all this mm. is just people who are genuinely appear to be enthused about music that was made in some cases you know five or six years before they were born well, I just, I don't know. Yeah, it's just being, well, I think it's just more like being old enough to have a reference point. So I think for a lot of, well, for myself and my peers, you know, Garage is really hailed as this kind of, you know, nostalgic sound that we kind of got a little bit in, but weren't old enough to tap into. Mm. And I think if you're, a, you know, an older producer, obviously you have lots of different reference points because um, obviously like House then couldn't have been influenced by dubstep because it didn't exist. So yeah. you have all these different reference points and you're kind of in a position where you can play them out in a track and actually, you know, be a part of that and that's why it's exciting and that's why it's having a moment isn't it i think it's interesting your choice um is sort of the other side of the coin isn't it i mean if this took me back to that kind of idea of magister in the late 90s and the video sort of people in warehouses um you know with the flares and with the long long hair and the the sort of acid t-shirts on uh, and that was one side of the coin uh, i think the record that you've picked is the other side of the coin isn't it to some extent let's have a listen to it <laughs> Uh, that's my choice. That's Jaguar Mars, The Throw, um, which has already been out as a single, but the album is out, uh, the debut album is out next week. It's interesting you say that, because that hadn't really occurred to me. Now, taken out of context of the album, particularly that clip, it sounds like the Happy Mondays. It sounds like the Vince Clark remix of, of Rope for Luck, um, uh, which the rest of the album, which doesn't, you know, the rest of the album doesn't. They're kind of much more part of that uh, slightly odd Australian uh, new psychedelic scene um, that also involves Tame Impala. It has got that sort of undertow of a, like a dance influence, obviously Tame Impala's music doesn't. Um, but there are other tracks in the album that are much more sort of retro sounding than that, much more obviously sort of psyche. Um, I suppose in the context of that, you could argue that actually that sort of era of the Happy Mondays, that particularly album bummed, that's just like a great a great modern psychedelic record in that it does actually sound like a drug experience happening before your very ears. Um, it hadn't really, I hadn't really thought of this as a particularly kind of retro baggy thing, you know, particularly because uh, that awful, what's that awful bloody uh, piece, that terrible album, which, I mean, I, I, I suppose if you're going to, I feel like I'm defending this thing, which is a really good record. Um, but, um, if you're going to sound like something from the early 90s, you may as well sound like the Vince Clark remix of, of uh, Rope for Love by the Happy Mondays, rather than, as Peace do, sound like some sort of half-assed major label baggy band that was signed three years too late. Yeah, it's an excellent <laughs> reference point. I mean, that was I just came, heard that one thing, and then, and then the only other thing I knew is that they're from Australia, and they're probably from a very sophisticated... Uh, grown up bit of Australia but I like to imagine them being I don't think they're from the bush in the middle of nowhere <laughs> having grown up you know with, with their uncle down the road who had three records in his yeah. collection and one of those was bummed uh, and you know they just done that one thing but I stand correct no it's an interesting idea no 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 that's that's I hadn't really hadn't thought of it in that in that kind of context at all and it's intriguing that and then after you said that obviously isn't that clip and particularly that bit it's more of a song to it I think as well the, the and, and you know it's that and the previous record to me 
feels like that era brought to life in a way that, uh, you know, I'm not going to go and see the Shane Meadows Stone Roses documentary, although I think I probably will go and see them at Finsbury Park this weekend. But I've, I've sort of fought shy of that whole yeah. side of, of that revivalism yeah. of it because that's such a sort of, I don't know, brings with it all this baggage, baggy baggage. that isn't really... <laughs> how it felt at the time. Does that make sense? Do you know what yes, I mean? Yes, it's, it's, it's a lot of fat old blokes with shaved heads singing along to, you know, uh, Made of Stone or whatever. And something like the Jaguar Mar track, you hear it and you think, oh, that's what it felt mm. like. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It's got, it's got okay, okay. I, I, it has a certain Balearic aspect to it, the <laughs> Jaguar Mar track. It could probably, rather than just saying it sounds like, it could probably have come out on Boy's Own in 1991. I hadn't thought of it that way. Kieran? Yeah, I think that's interesting, actually, what, what Casper has just said about kind of that almost clinical documentation of a scene which doesn't give you that sense you know when you hear it it doesn't feel like oh yeah I remember being there it's like with those kind of documentaries it, you know it's so contrived and it's its whole purpose is to try and make you feel like well, that, was, you remember that moment the Shane Meadows thing which I was, but I, I'm but the trailer's really for... like that I think from the snippet yeah. it, it feels very uh, yeah. it's working pretty hard but um, yeah and this does feel like it's you know it, it feels like you're being transported in a more organic kind of way and Jaguar Mario interesting because so much has been written about what great live performers they are in the same way that Tame Impala and Savages are um, and I haven't seen them so I've just got the critics I'm quite intrigued one, they're playing on the 19th I believe somewhere, somewhere like the Village Underground or something like that they're playing in London on the 19th although they always say that they're, I've read a couple of interviews and it always says that they're inspired by Jay Dillo and I can never hear any of that everyone says this. that every oh, yeah, single like, person it's like law if you're making a record <laughs> oh Jay Dillo Donuts Donuts are my favourite <laughs> album Don't, it's like you've got to say that I know there's members of <laughs> of bands that Dom Lawson likes, right? There's members of bands yeah. called like Impaled None or something like that. Like, and they're probably sitting in interviews going, you know what we really like? Yeah. The only person Jay who Diller. doesn't say that is Johnny Burrell because he's just uh, out on a limb on his own. He's telling me, yeah, you see, another, another reason to, uh, well, he to give... He is the Jay Diller. Of he is the Jay Diller of Landfill Indy. <laughs> um, um, yes, I think um, it's an interesting point about the Stone Roses thing. I think it's because um, the notion of that sort of idea about the Stone Roses the greatest British band, you know, it's the greatest debut album. It's been sort of passed down as kind of folklore, and it's actually been passed down as part of a sort of nostalgic history of the 90s. Uh, And like all nostalgic histories, it involves a process of curation. You cut all this stuff out, and, you know, it becomes this sort of... In the same way that the Happy Monday story, kind of the sheer weirdness of an album like Bum Bum is a really odd-sounding record. You kind of sort of think... Do you end up making it produced all wrong, and then, and that's sort of left out of the story to create a clear and linear narrative that goes Happy Monday, Stone Roses, Manchester. Then nothing whatsoever happened. Then Britpop happened, and actually the mid nineties weren't like that at all. I never really listened to Britpop in the mid nineties. I listened to dance music, you know. And, and, and I think you're right. I think that's the way the history's been written. That in a way, the Roses were the, the band that begat Oasis. Yes, you know, and yeah. actually. It's much more interesting than that. Yeah. And a way to think about the Roses as a band that we're bringing together of these disparate of, of dance music, of ecstasy culture, yeah. and all that kind of thing. And it's become yes, absolutely. And it's now become yes that they were like the forebears of of, uh, of Britpop, which is is a kind of fairly crap. You know, it's a reductive thing to say about the Stone Roses because initially they didn't seem to be like a rock band at all. It seems to be this. You know, that was my initial perception of them in, in sort of 1989. It was like this is something from. You know, this is part of the sort of Manchester, it's part of the Hacienda thing, it's part of the Manchester dance scene. And it was very alien, or appeared to me to be very, you know, as someone that liked indie music at times, quite alien to indie music. It's funky and sort of all that stuff. Also, that's why it's, it sounds weird having this as, as a comparison, because, you know, I always think of Stone Roses as making music that was like kind of quintessentially working class and a bit harsh and from Manchester, which was a bit of a shit place at that time mm. and cold and, you know, <laughs> whereas this is like, you know, from like the sunny, hazy, like beautiful so, kind of, you know, from the plains of Australia and it doesn't sound so different. Well, that's, that's, that's the influence of ecstasy for you on a, a young mind, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like, I'm sure Manchester in the, uh, in the late 80s wasn't that sort of marvellous a place to... Felt like Melbourne. Yeah, you know, that sort of sun-kissed and beautiful thing. But, you know... Yeah. My Mersey Paradise by the Stone Roses, you know, it makes it sound nice, doesn't it? You know, um, so yeah, there you go. Anyway, okay, Jaguar Mars are the throw. That's from their uh, forthcoming debut album, which is out next week, and that's Singles Claw. 
Grammy Award winning folk singer-songwriter Patty Griffin has got a new album out. She came in to talk to Laura Barton about how her father got kicked out of a monastery, about writing with Robert Plant, and how everyone's too cool these days to write a proper love song. I should say here that it was Patty Griffin's father who got kicked out of a monastery, not Laura Barton's. Thank you very, very much for coming in today. Um, it is an honour to have you here. Thank you. You have uh, just released your latest album, American Kid, um, which is a stunning record. Thank you. It's, um, Thanks a lot. It's devastating at times and it's heartwarming at others. I know a lot of it has been inspired by your father and your mm-hmm. relationship with him. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I started writing, well, a lot of these songs I was writing at a time where he was passing away and I... I just write about what's going on in my life, and that's what was going on. But he seemed to have had a remarkable life himself, didn't he? He was a really um, lovely guy, a, a little Irish guy, uh, very small and and a lot of attitude. And um, Am I right in thinking there was something to do with Trappist monks, though? That's yeah. really quite remarkable <laughs> to me. <laughs> Yeah, he he was one of these guys that was born in the 20s and lived through the Depression and then ended up, uh, you know, making a Normandy beach landing and lived through all of that and uh, went home and got really overeducated on the GI Bill and, and uh, didn't know what to do with himself, so he decided he would try to be a Trappist monk, which is a silent order. And my father is, was very quiet, so I thought he... I'm sure he thought he could pull it off, but um, he also had a really hot temper, and that probably didn't go very well in the monastery. <laughs> Possibly not. <laughs> he got kicked out anyway. <laughs> Being kicked out of, of the monastery is pretty cool. In the nicest of ways. I, I think they just told him he wasn't monk material. He should really go somewhere else. <laughs> God is a wild old dog Someone left out on the highway I seen him running by me. He don't belong to no one else. And in writing these songs, did you come to see your father differently? Did you did you investigate his life differently? Did it shift your perspective on him? Well, he, had, he was, you know, from that generation where they didn't talk about themselves very much, so he gave little bits here and there of, of his history. And as he was going, I he wasn't really able to talk anyway that much. And so I, I just made up stories, really. A lot of them are made up. I just started trying to fill in the blanks and understand a little bit about who he was. It was your father who gave you Sergeant Pepper, is that right? He did. I can't give him all the credit, though. He, he he allowed me to go to the record store and pick out what I wanted, and that was, yeah. Were your parents a big musical influence? I know they've sung on one of your records before, haven't they? Yeah. Well, my mother is a fantastic singer. She comes from a long line of singers who probably sang in the fields or sang chopping wood or whatever they were doing, and um, she had seven children in seven years. She was very busy, and she was always singing you know, to the point where I remember really early somebody playing, a, I think it was either Peggy Lee or Ella Fitzgerald record in the house, and I got really confused about who that was. You know, it sounded like my mother to me because her voice was so rich and strong and beautiful and smoky from singing all the time. Very beautiful singer. Um, and was it her who sort of kindled your love of singing, your, encouraged you in your own It helped to me to voice. understand early on uh, that that was what I loved to do and and helped me to focus on... I was 12 years old when I decided, I think I'm going to try to learn how to do this well, you know. I knew I loved it, and she gave me that, certainly. Um, Robert Plant um, has appears on three of these songs and yeah. has written yeah. with you. What is it that is a songwriting partnership you give to each other? Um, well, co-writing is very unusual for me. Mm. Um, he... He's a brilliant arranger. I think people don't realize, you know, after all these years of being in bands, you know, he can 
figure out a song in about five minutes, you know, take it apart and put it back together in a brand, together again in a brand new way that works. <laughs> and Ohio, uh, I had Ohio. Pretty, uh, the lyrics were finished, and I had a melody and, and a structure, and he sort of chopped it up here and there and, and uh, said, slow down, don't sing it so loud, and, and play this groove, and, and he doctored it up for me. How well <laughs> do you take the advice if you, you're so used to, to doing that stuff yourself and knowing what to do? <laughs> You know, in that instance, I took it really well. I was happy for the help. But there have been others? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, you know, lyrical choices when, when you're co-writing are, are a little difficult for me. I'm, I'm pretty particular about that, and I have my own mind about it. How would you describe your lyrical choices compared to his? I'm I'm American and he's English. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good way. Probably a lot <laughs> of it. I think that's probably it's a lot not of just it. in the spelling. Yeah, he's used to phrasing and um, things a certain way. And uh, there's a couple of covers on here, isn't there? Um, there's uh, Lefty Frizzles. I never know how you pronounce Frizzle. Frizzell. Frizzell. Yeah. Frizzells. Uh, Mom and Dad's Waltz. Yeah. Why did you choose that one? Well, I, I wanted to do a Lefty song because I, I I was studying American country music for this record. They're really good stuff, the old stuff, and um, I never really spent any time uh, digging into it in my life. Maybe a little Patsy Cline in my younger years, but that's it. And so um, I wanted to include Lefty because Lefty's... So his songs are so uh, vulnerable. He's the guy who wrote, if you got the money, honey, I got the time. But he was a real honky-tonk, uh, big-drinking, big loud guy and uh, died young probably because of his lifestyle. But he uh, also had the most tender, real love songs and really straight out of the heart. And uh, you just don't hear that anymore. Everybody's too cool and too hip to... No one would ever write about their mom and daddy anymore. It's you know? true. <laughs> it's very sweet, and it kind of uh, is challenging to my cynicism, you know, to even learn it. And it's such a beautiful song. That, it is. Yeah, yeah, loved it. I'd walk for miles, cry or smile for my mom and daddy. I want them, I want them to know. One of the standout moments, I think, on this album is Irish Boy. And I know there's a oh, bit of a story you. attached to that. It was, it was a, a long time coming, that song, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it took a long time to record it. It was kind of like this little joke on me, trying to get it done. I, I, I tried it uh, different producers when we, you know, just trying out producers for the record and um, different production ideas on it, and I couldn't get it, and I couldn't get it. And I must have sung this song, I, I want to say, a hundred times, but it probably wasn't that many times. It was a lot. And in the recording of this record, it got down to the last two mixed days and I still hadn't gotten it and Craig Ross the producer made me do it in the in the mix studio and and uh, it finally showed up on St. Patrick's Day which is appropriate enough very funny yeah. <laughs> um yeah. what was missing and what were you looking for I didn't have this is this is one of those made-up stories about my dad he gave me the he gave me the the picture and I, I filled in the story so I needed to figure out who he was inside of it, and I think uh, I needed to, to sort of get his personality or what the personality of the song. And I was pushing too hard here and pulling back too much there, and it all just kind of lined up one day, and it fit. It took a while. <laughs> There's too many men telling their secrets these days, and 
Just to go back to the studying country music, can you tell us where you started um, what and why you started studying um, it? I've been around people that do it so long of course, for years. Yeah. You know, I didn't grow up listening. I, I was around me as a child, but we kind of made fun of all of that stuff. So <laughs> I feel really bad about that now. What did you think of it when you were a child? What we just we go, you know, we just thought it was really hokey. And it was because, you know, my grandmother liked it and... But I just ended up, you know, in Nashville, not expecting to be there and meeting all these amazing players and singers. And I shut my mouth right away when I got there. But I realized, you know, maybe 10, 15 years after getting there, I'd never really um, studied it. And uh, I asked people to start giving me country music. And Lefty Frizzell was one of the first people that I got a hold of. And it's great. I don't know if you've ever been to the States and driven around like Texas or anything, but it's great to listen to George Jones and Lefty and all those people when you're driving through those landscapes. It makes a lot of sense. What, what is it that you think you'd missed as a child? What quality does it have and what does it bring to people? Because especially to our ears in Britain, it can be one of the hardest yeah. American forms of music. To, to <laughs> I mean, I actually love it now, but only because I spent a lot of time in that part of the world. But yeah. But it took me a long while um, yeah. because it sounds so alien and, and, and sort of off-putting and, and I can't do as good an impression as you just did of what country music sounds like. But um, yeah, <laughs> that, that twang is, is strange. Yeah. I think originally it was the stigma attached to it for me, you know, uh, and uh, and it's awfully literal, literal writing. You know, it's, it's really... But I've come to appreciate it more because it's... It's so vulnerable, you know. It's straight up out of this very. It's a very usually, especially lefty songs. They're simple stories, straight out of his life, and they're they're aimed directly at somebody. It takes a lot of guts to do that, and he's not trying to polish up who he is or um, be more refined. He's just being himself, and and it's really captures a great moment, I think. Show you all something someday Show you all something someday That was Laura Barton talking to Patty Griffin. Her latest album, American Kid, is out now on Columbia. That's it for this week. Thank you, Casper. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Uh, Kieran, you and I will be back yep. next week. Go to guardian.co.uk forward slash music weekly for more info on the show and links to singles called tracks. We'll see you next week. <laughs>